Good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, this is way better than sitting on the couch and talking to a screen. Um, and also, it's just really good to be together and worshiping Jesus, right? So I want to start with this. A few years ago, Sarah and I went to a theater. Uh, we went to see a movie. Uh, this was before we had kids and long before coronavirus. And good olden days when we could just go off to the theater whenever we wanted. So we went to see this movie, and this movie is called The Book Thief. Some of you may have read the book uh, that the movie is based on. Sarah did. I personally did not. I'm in the camp that if there's a movie, they made that movie so that I don't have to read the book. Uh, you might be in the camp that you have to read the book, like Sarah is in that camp, and she reads every book that there's a movie. Not every book, but but she reads many of the books that there's movies, and then we can watch the movie. So I have to wait a long time sometimes. So, uh, but this story, this story takes place during World War II, and there's this scene I still remember when the group of German Jews are huddling together in a small bomb shelter. And if you can just picture this with me, it's dark. And aside from a distant sound of bombs, the room is completely silent. I'll call it anxious silence. No one's talking. In the absence of, com- of the conversation, you feel the room. You feel the tension. You feel the fear. And in this dark underground room, the bombs are the least of these people's worries. The fear of German Gestapo is far greater for them. At any moment, these German soldiers could walk in and those who are hiding would be dragged out and thrown into the concentration camp. And we feel this happening in this scene. We feel the fear of those people who have for their lives, for their families, for their children, for their religious freedom. And the scene has been replayed over and over throughout history, right? Like one of the earliest records we have is a group of people hiding in the room for fear of their lives is when Jesus died on the cross. His disciples were hiding in the room behind locked doors. And throughout history, they, there have been many rooms, rooms heavy with the fear of death or persecution or fear for the safety of family or fear for religious freedom or fear for where the decision makers or the powers that be would bring them. And this particular scene in this movie, in the middle of this tiny, dark bomb shelter, in the middle of the chaos and fear, in the middle of the tension, a young girl gets up and interrupts the silence and begins to tell a story that she read in one of her books. It's almost like a light has been turned on and children gather, parents smile, and her story for a second takes them all to the brighter days and better lands. Peace is there, even if it is only for a minute. And here's the thing. Here's the thing. While we might never have to hide in a dark room somewhere for fear of our lives, fear does the same thing to us. It locks us in. It makes us pull away from others. It isolates and divides. Fear for our health. Fear for uh, fear of losing our personal or religious 
freedoms, fear for where the policy makers or decision makers might lead us or leave us. Even though we don't have bombs going off or soldiers coming in to get us, all of us have experienced fear and isolation in recent months. All of us have experienced the divisiveness that fear brings. And I'm not just talking about the divisiveness that's out there, right? Like there is out there the divisiveness, but, but I'm talking about the right here in our own church body. There, there are probably people sitting close to you who have a very different idea of what safety or greater good looks like than you do. And there's a hungry monster crouching at the door, ready to drag us apart from each other. But here's the thing. Like in the book Thief, what brings us together is not our shared fears. What brings us together is also not our shared opinions. But what truly unites us is the story. And the story is not some fiction story. It's not a fairy tale. No, we are united by the gospel story, the truth of Jesus Christ and the power of his cross. So this Sunday, just for this Sunday, we're going to come together. Um, and, and so, yes, we're together for the first time in a long time. And I want to look at a, at a passage that talks about unity that we have around this story. And I want us to remember why, with all of our many differences, with all many opinions, that we come together as one body. So we'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 10. So you grab your Bible, flip there. But before I read this passage for us and walk through it, uh, let me give a very quick, very short overview of where um, why Paul is writing this or what, what is this book even about. So in verse 1 of chapter 1, we see that the Apostle Paul writes this letter and he has help. Uh, Sophonis is helping him to write this letter. This letter was written around 53 or 54 AD, just in case you want to place it in the history. And Paul is writing this letter to the church in Corinth. Corinth was the city that was up and coming. Uh, they are progressive. Money and trade are all-time high. But here's the problem. This church that Paul is writing to is divided. They are a mess. It's almost as if fear and division are ruling the day, and they're forgetting what they're called to. And so into this, Paul says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and there will be no divisions among you, but that you'll be united in the same mind and the same judgment. So I appeal to you. Paul is making an urgent request to this church and he adds, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This means he's not sharing, Paul is not sharing his opinion. He is sharing the words of Jesus Christ. So we need to listen. We need to learn and apply this to our lives. This is the word of God. So what is his request or what is God's request? That all of you agree and that there will be no divisions among you. So I read that. I read that verse this past week and thought, kind of laughing almost, thought, that's cute, Paul. But we're in 2020. Like this year, 2020 has been hard, Paul. Do you, do you understand? Like, would you say those words to us now? 
This year has brought so much to the table, uh, a pandemic, racial tensions at all-time high, peaceful protests and riots. And oh yeah, it's, a, it's an election year. An election year by itself is divisive, but having so many other things happening at the same time is moving us even farther from the place of agreement. And God wants us to do what? Agree and have no divisions among us? Well, the word for division in Greek can be translated as cracks, splits, tears, fractions, factions, and divisions. So Paul is saying, listen, this is not coming from me. But from God, I urgently want you to listen to this. Uh, you have, you've got to be united and not have any cracks, splits, tears, fractions in this church body. In fact, I want you to be united in the same mind and same judgment. And that sounds great, right? That sounds great. I think everybody in here would agree that that sounds great. This, the, the, everyone in here would agree that this sounds awesome. So what's the problem? Everyone agrees that we should be united. Everyone agrees that unity is this great idea. Everyone I know thinks this way. Like no one I know just flat out thinks chaos is great. I'm like come on, let's get behind chaos. Like no one. I don't know anyone who goes that way. Like no one says division is the way to go. Like I don't know anybody. So why do divisions exist? And particularly, why do divisions exist in the church? Why do divisions exist with us or around us? Well, it will help if we understand unity a little better before answering this question. So what is unity, especially what is unity in the context of a church body? Uh, here's a paraphrase of a definition I found for this kind of unity. Unity is a community of people who come from diverse walks of life who, who come together around the gospel and join God's mission to the world. So unity is a community of people who come from diverse walks of life who come together around the gospel and join God's mission to the world. So we all come from diverse walks of life, right? Like many of us didn't grow up in the same part of the country or even in the same country, me, right? I grew up in Russia. We educate our kids differently. We, we got different, uh, different ages in here, different ethnicities. We got different livelihoods and different political views. This means that all of us are different. Sure, we all tend to be, uh, lean towards narcissism and we tend to want everyone to look and act like us, but that's just not the case in the church body. We're all different, but Jesus and his blood unites us. So that's the common ground. He unites us, not our clothes or our skin color or our politics. But don't miss the point that unity is not about similarity. makes this great claim on unity, but he doesn't stop here. He goes on to explain the ins and outs of it. He says in verse 11, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So we don't know who Chloe really is. Like, we can speculate that Chloe, Chloe was well known in the community. She probably had a house church that gathered at her house, which means she was probably wealthy and had a spacious house. 
And we can tell from this verse that Chloe sent some people to let Paul know that there's quarreling in the church. Uh, they're not getting along. The people are fighting. People are arguing. So what, what are they arguing about? Well, verse 12 tells us that what I mean is that each one of you say, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And at first, at first, uh, this seems like this is a lame argument, right? Like, so what that you like Paul over Apollos? How is this a division? Well, this division was not about preference. Preference can lead to heated divisions, or at least in church history, sadly, we have seen heated debates and even church splits over the color of the carpet. Like, I want red instead of blue. But that's just not the case of what's happening here. Here's what's happening. There were teachers called sophists that specialized in using tools of philosophy and and creative arguments. They claimed to teach excellence or virtue uh, that applied to various areas of life. And here was the main problem. They would not just argue using tools of philosophy and rhetoric, but they would also degrade those who disagreed with them. In other words, if you disagree with them through a clever argument, they will insult you and all the things that you stand for. So they just put you down. And this way of thinking has entered the church. So when one guy says, I follow Paul, he would also go on to insult those around him who might like and enjoy teaching the Apollos. They're breaking into tribes of who they follow. And here's what is probably going on. Paul had planted this church in Corinth, and the original founding members, they they naturally loved Paul, and they were loyal to Paul. So when So they would probably bring Paul in the arguments to support their ideas. But others would say, yeah, Paul is this great, he's great in his writings, he's bold and passionate, but he's kind of a weak speaker. Like, he's boring. Unlike Apollos. You see, Apollos came after Paul, and he's educated, and he was a brilliant communicator of God's word. And like Paul later on in the letter says, Paul planted and Apollos watered, but God grows. So Apollos came after Paul, and he did some amazing work. I can imagine him being this smart, funny, and a good teacher. But those who loved him insulted the other groups. They would elevate Apollos and degrade others. The third group followed Cephas, so that is Peter. He probably came to visit the church, and and there's a group of probably Jewish people who loved Peter. He was one of the 12. He is a Jew. So this division was probably more in lines of ethnicity, Jews versus Gentiles. And, and Jews thought that they were better. They were originally chosen people by God. And because of their ethnicity, they would elevate themselves and degrade other others around them. The last tribe says, I follow Christ. And at first glance, it looks like, okay, cool. There's one healthy group. But in actuality, this group was anti-any authority. This group is basically saying, I don't need Paul to tell me what to do. Apollos, yeah, he's a good teacher, but I'm not going to submit to his authority. Peter, sure, he was part of the original 12, but I follow Christ, not Peter. I don't need any authority over me. And they would elevate themselves as the final authority. Pick a topic, and they had an opinion, and their opinion was the right opinion. So these four groups would each elevate themselves and look down on the others. And factions, division, splits are forming. 
And this is ripping the church apart. Now, to 2020. Remember, the church is made up of very different people from all kinds of walks of life. This means the church body is made of people who are white, black, and brown. This, this means the church is made up of, of males and females. This means the church body is made up of different opinions about many different topics. Topics like food. What is right for me to eat? Opinion on parenting. What is right way to parent and the wrong way to parent? Opinion on technology. What's the right way to use technology or how long and so on? Opinions on politics. Maybe you vote for a Republican candidate or maybe for a Democrat or maybe you don't vote. Maybe you vote for a Libertarian. And the list of varying opinions in the church body is long. The church should be the most diverse group of people because we are united not by those opinions, but we're united by the blood of Christ. Everything else is secondary. But this Topics, these secondary topics can be divisive, right? Like opinions on food can start as an opinion but can grow towards I eat well and others need to eat well too. And then others need to eat what I eat. And if they don't eat what I eat, well, they are wrong. And if we're not careful, we lift ourselves up and look down on those who don't eat like we eat. But we don't live in Fort Collins, so food was probably not a topic that divides us. But let, let me say some same thing about politics. A little bit more sensitive, right? But, but, but your vote is your opinion, and if you're not careful, you can land in the camp that says, my candidate is the only right candidate, and those who vote for anyone else are wrong. And if you're not careful, you lift yourself and your candidate up and it's all those who don't vote like you do. A little more sensitive, right? But do you see how that is divisive? You're elevating something that's secondary to a place of primary. One last thought on division before getting to unity. The root cause of division is pride. It's my firm sense of my own rightness or righteousness. This means that... it. it it's my need to feel important or significant, and being right gives me that sense. It makes me feel like I'm okay. Being right justifies me. And that's the root behind most fights, right? Like, that's the cause of many conflicts and divisions. T.S. Eliot says it like this. She says, half the harm that is done in this world is due to people who want to feel important. They don't mean to do harm, but the harm does not interest them. Or they do not see it, or they justify it, because they are absorbed in the endless struggle to think well of themselves. What T.S. Eliot means is that we crave this feeling of importance. We want to think well of ourselves. And the way we convince ourselves we are important is by pr proving ourselves right by justifying our opinions and our decisions. And if someone differs from me, then it threatens my rightness. And what happens? I get upset or, oh, I'll do whatever it takes to keep up on my shaky pedestal of rightness. Even if it means demeaning the other person. Even if it means getting into an argument on social media. Even, 
even if it means shutting them out or leaving so I don't have to deal with their contradictions anymore. Now keep that in mind and see what Paul says. Paul says in verse 13, is Christ divided? Absolutely not. Was Paul crucified for you? The answer is no. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? Of course not. So this phrase in the name of is a phrase that implies ownership. So in the name of Jesus means we put ourselves under his name, under his ownership, and that we are to submit to and follow Jesus. Now, in verse 14 through 16, Paul goes on a tangent. He's basically saying what went down originally. So in verse 14, he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. Paul says, listen, this is coming from God. Be united. Don't try to elevate yourself over others. And then he goes on on a tangent. I baptize only Crispus and Gaius, so don't try to claim my ownership over anyone. Oh, yeah, I also baptize Stephanus, the household. Besides that, I don't know or I don't even remember if I baptized anyone else. And so the reason Paul is talking about baptism is because baptism is about identification, right? In baptism, you are identified with Christ. It's a symbol of the gospel. And here is why he mentions baptism, because not only were they identifying with Christ, they were also identifying with a specific person or a specific movement or a specific group instead of identifying with Christ alone. And Christ is the one who died for their sins and rose from the dead and not those other people. And by by finding their identity just as much in a person or a group as they did in Christ, they're actually creating this division. And I think we need to stop for a second right now and ask this question. Where are we identifying so much with a platform or a group or a person that we're shaping our identity around that rather than having our identity shaped by the person and work of Jesus Christ. We elevated something that is secondary to a, a primary, and, and now we're revolving around that. Paul on and, and says in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So listen, I'm, I'm not coming to you as a sophist with eloquent wisdom, but I'm coming to you as a missionary proclaiming the cross of Jesus. I'm coming to you preaching Jesus and the work of the cross, period. That's what I'm doing. Talking about unity. And we said that no one denies that we need to be united. Everyone in here thinks we should be united. That we should be unified. But in a year like 2020, with so much fear, with so much chaos, so much division over how to respond to the crises we've been facing, and then add a social media to the equation and subtract gathering with one another, and what are you going to get? 
You're going to get opinions without personal connection, opinions without a conversation, righteousness or rightness without love. Basically, you have a recipe for a divided body. And we want unity, but it isn't natural. It, it takes work. And because of this, it's easy to slip into division. So how do we stay unified? How do we stay unified as a body of Christ? How do we stay uni united on a township level? How do we stay united with those who differ from us? Because basically, because different is basically all that there is in a church body. So I want to run through four observations from the text that will help us with unity as a church body. So first and most essential way we stay united is by focusing on the gospel. We stay centered on the good news of Jesus. Paul says, I'm here to preach the gospel. We focus on what actually unites us, the blood that saved us and the blood that continues to unite us as brothers and sisters in Christ. If you are a believer, there's no division within this topic. 100% of those who are followers of Jesus agree that Jesus saved us by dying on the cross for our sins. 100% believe that Jesus took our sinfulness on himself. 100% agree that Jesus gave us his righteousness. 100% agree that we are adopted to God's family because of the grace of God through the work of Jesus sealed by the Holy Spirit. So the good news of Jesus is the perfect place to start. The good news of Jesus is the star, the nucleus that we are all orbiting. It is our center. So what does it mean about other topics? What does it mean about different philosophies or cultural issues or politics or other different views? Well, it's simple. It's secondary. They are secondary. And if you keep them secondary, then, then unity will exist. But here is when division is knocking at the door. When we replace the gospel, one of those secondary topics, secondary issues. Now there's room for division. If we keep the gospel at the center, we'll actually value other people's opinion and want to hear, learn, and love. The gospel will cause us to want to die to ourselves and love our neighbor as ourselves. It will allow us to respect the other person's opinion. It will allow us to listen and learn from each other and apply what we learn to our lives. That's what the gospel does. It changes us. It humbles us. It makes us look more and more like Jesus who emptied himself and took the form of a servant. So that's the first observation. Keep focused on the gospel. Keep Jesus' life, death, and resurrection at the center of everything we do. Now, second observation. Keep a healthy view on leadership, and in this case, church leadership. This means elders, deacons, township leaders, worship leaders, staff, and whatever category I may have missed. Categories we already have and categories we'll have in years to come. Keep a healthy view on leadership. What we see in the division into Paul, Paulo's, and Peter's fan clubs is an unhealthy view of leadership. We don't exalt anyone. All leaders are human. I'm human. Your township leader is a human. And the problem with human 
or humans is is that each human has problems and issues. Humans will let you down. People will let you down. So don't exalt a leader. He's just a broken sinner who's relying on the grace and strength of our Lord Jesus Christ to help him lead. But here's the thing. We can't jump on the other extreme either. We, we must not disrespect the leader either. In 1 Thessalonians 5.12, Paul says, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. In the church, you're, you are not your own authority. God placed leaders over you. We don't elevate them, but we also don't disrespect them. Listen, in our individualistic society, we don't love this because the only authority we trust is me, myself, and I. We are all about being our own authority. But God placed leaders over you. So don't elevate them, but don't disrespect them either. Pray for them. Don't talk bad about them behind their back. That just sows disunity. If you have a problem, go to them in love. Listen, we are a young church, and many, many more leaders will be placed in years to come. And we are to respect them and pray for them and, and through that, we will remain and maintain unity. So the way we keep unity is first and foremost, keeping the gospel central. Second, we don't idolize or disrespect our leaders. Now, third, we as a church body need to know our place. We need to know what is my role here. Paul says, Christ didn't send me to baptize, but to preach. The church is made up of a diverse crowd united by the blood of Christ. And we have many different gifts. So we all have a role to play. This is not Sergei trying to do everything. That would be so unhealthy, exhausting for me, and bad for our church. That's why we need to rely on each other. We are a body of Christ. That's the language that Paul uses later on in the book. It means we are to play a role in our church. Well, we all have a, we have, we, we all play a role in our church. We are all different, but play a huge role. We need to value people in their roles. I said this earlier, but the church body is made up of all kinds of people, right? Old, young, white, brown, black, rich and poor, Democrats and Republicans, hipsters and hippies, soccer moms and vegans. Everyone is here. We are a random group of people. And here's the problem with this. We, by nature, are self-lovers, so we are people who are, who are just like, we like people who are just like us. We, by nature, self-lovers, so we like people who are just like us, people who dress like us, who have the same interests as us. Like, if you, if you run into a guy who likes golf and you like golf, then there's man crush that's born, right? Like, man crush! But what if they don't look like you? or dress like you, or have same interests as you? What happens? What happens when they are not like you? It becomes harder to value them, right? As a church body, we have many people with many differences, and we need to learn how to value each other. We need to value each other. We, don't, we don't, really don't need people to be the same. That's not unity. That's just similarity. 
to continue with the human body metaphor that Paul uses because, because you're not a leg doesn't mean you need to get upset with someone who is. See their difference as a strength. Value them. And this is true in so many areas of life. Like think of your marriage or think of your relationship. Like your spouse is very different than you are. And if you can't see those differences as strength, then your marriage will struggle. But if you see them as a strength, then you will appreciate those differences and actually lift each other up. So first, we, ha- we, we keep the gospel at the center. Second, we don't idolize or disrespect our leaders. Third, we know our role in the body and we see the value of different parts in the body. Lastly, this is connected to the first one, but we stay on the same vision and mission. Church is not a social club, right? Like this is bigger than that. Church is about Jesus who died for us. And we need to be on the same page about our vision and mission. Paul says, I came to preach the gospel. He states his mission clearly. And the church body doesn't exist for itself. In other words, we are not here for us. We're here because of Jesus and for Jesus. So as a church, we want to see the gospel transforms everything. That's our vision statement. That means we as a diverse group of people are united by the blood of our Savior who died on the cross for us instead of us declaring us as innocent, brought us into his family. And that really reality transforms us and everything around us. It transforms how we treat one another. It transforms our witness to the world around us. And Jesus said, that's our main witness in, is that we, our love for one another. This gospel unites us. Jesus saved us as individuals and Jesus brought us into his family, this family. And this family is very different. We have more differences than similarities, but we're united by Jesus and his blood. You see, this is the roadmap for us to stay united during a difficult season. And guess what? We're going to have many, many more difficult seasons. Like we're we're not done having like year year 2020 will happen again maybe very differently but there will be a difficult season and this roadmap hey, this is a roadmap for us how to stay united as a body this roadmap has Jesus at its its center this roadmap map will carry us through the season many many seasons to come but listen we can't grow weary of fighting for unity. And I say fighting because it will be a battle against self, against rightness, against elevating something in place that only Jesus holds. And as a body, as a church body, let us lean into the one who saved us by his blood and unites us through his blood as brothers and sisters in Christ. So let us lean on the gospel and keep it central. Let us pray for unity over and over and over. Let us value those who are different than us. Let us have a proper view of leadership. Let us lean on our vision as a church to see the gospel transform everything. Let us be united by the blood of Jesus. So let me pray for us. Father, this is, this is your church. 
your son, Jesus, is the head of this church. And your son, Jesus, is the one who unites us by his blood. And we need to hear that. We need to hear that. We need to be reminded of that, and especially in a time like today where there's so many divisions and fractions and, and, and all kinds of influences that are hitting us. God, and I pray that for our body right now, that we will be a people who are united by the blood of Christ. That we'll be able to, in love, value one another, listen, care. I pray those things for our church, for our church body. That this kind of seasons, especially things that are happening in our culture that won't divide us, but actually, as people look in, they will see the beauty of, of us being united under the umbrella of Jesus' blood. I pray that for our church. I pray this in your beautiful son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.